0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to ten percent happier early and ad free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey there, the guest uh, this week is awesome, Ethan Nickturn. He is uh, a longtime uh, meditation teacher, although he's a pretty young guy. He but he he was as you'll hear, uh, and is, he's very interesting on this on this front. He was he was raised in a Buddhist community, a very interesting one. Um, and and controversial one, and so he'll talk about that. Um, and he's got a book which is going to sound uh, lighthearted to you uh, when I tell you what the title is, but actually it is much deeper than you might expect. Uh, the book is called The Dharma of the Princess Bride, and he talks about how The Princess Bride, which is a cult favorite movie, which I uh, uh, love, and I, I think you're hard-pressed to find somebody who doesn't love if they haven't seen it. He talks about the Buddhist themes and especially as it uh, pertains to uh, relationships, uh, in in this movie, um, uh, in his book about the movie. Uh, so, but before we get to that, in in the in the discussion, we talk a lot about this uh, about his personal history, which has, has some very interesting twists and turns. So here he is, Ethan Nickturn from ABC. This is the Ten Percent Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. So you got a lot going on, yeah, yeah. Book and baby simultaneously. Yeah. How long before you, uh, this moment did you did your wife give birth?
1: One week. One week. Izzy is one week old. Is, yeah.
0: Isabella Atlas is uh, one week old as we record this. That's huge. Yeah, huge. It's really well, exciting. She's pretty small, but it's, she's small. It's huge. Yeah. She's small only in stature, right? But not in terms of I'm sure her vocal capacity.
1: Gravitational pull,
0: yes. Gravitational yeah. pull. Uh, so is everybody's healthy and happy?
1: Everybody's very healthy. Yeah. Um, uh, Marissa, my wife, gave it like uh, kind of the everybody in the uh, delivery room was kind of uh, very um, inspired by the way she handled the whole situation. So, and everybody's healthy. And Izzy was three weeks early, which was surprise, but happens. And so, uh, yeah, it was nice to get used to spontaneous. Spontaneously arising phenomenon, as we might say. In <laughs> you're, you're putting it in a Buddhist context already.
0: Uh, so, I mean, uh, let let's let's dive right into it. Uh, I want to talk about your book, um, but I'd love some background on you. Um, how did you start? How did you come to meditation? You you came by it as I as I know very honestly. But tell tell the listeners.
1: Yeah. So I uh, <clears throat> I think there's a term for us, uh, which maybe you're already pretty familiar with, Dharma brat. Which Dharma is brat. When yeah. your parents are. Western Buddhist people, I don't think they call you a Dharma brat if you're, you know, from Tibet and your parents were Buddhist. Um, I think they just call you a Buddhist person. But in the West, especially in the United States, if your parents were Buddhists, uh, my parents were both students of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was the founder of the Shambhala tradition, one of the big voices of Buddhism coming to North America, especially Tibetan Buddhism.
0: And uh, we've had previous guests on <clears throat> who grew up who grew up in that lineage, including your friend Lodro Rinzler. Yes. Uh, Tro- Cho Yam Trungpa Rinpoche, fascinating guy, controversial dude. For sure. For sure. Uh, We can talk about him at some point if you want. But anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt, but just filling out the picture here. Yeah.
1: So I, um, let's see. A few of these things are noted in my um, book, but I grew up here in New York City, lived the first two years of my life. Um, My parents moved from Los Angeles then to a meditation center in Vermont. So that's where I was a baby to toddler. And uh, then moved back to New York City, where my father was from, and so grew up here in Manhattan as a as a Buddhist kid. So I took my first class in meditation around fourth or fifth grade, um, which was really boring. Um, uh, it was led by uh, one of the uh, senior teachers or acharyas in the Shambala tradition, Eric Spiegel. So I give him quite a lot of props for putting up with a group of small group of kids. Um, I remember the girl in front of me complained that I was breathing too loudly, which made me feel bad because I had asthma. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, didn't really get into it because I was a kid and it was boring. But there was a sort of awareness of – being from a tradition that was really interested in the mind. And um, in high school, I started meditating, Um, did a few weekend meditation retreats, but really started doing it kind of on my own. Like I would, after school, um, go into my room and like say I was taking a nap, but then meditate for like 15 minutes. And then, as I say in this book, it was – you know really when the first time i got dumped after my freshman year in college that's when i decided i was a buddhist <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you got you got a big taste of groundlessness and said all right i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to latch on to this thing yeah
1: yeah it was really i mean it was uh, i think college was a very interesting time for relationship to this just cuz you know you're studying all these ideas about the way the world works in my case also studying some ideas about the way the world can be deconstructed you know, how much our views and solid views determine a sort of narrative of reality. So kind of studying Western ideas of how that can be um, undercut and uh, and also just realizing that, you know, most of us were (laughs) depressed or angry or coming into our own, you know, and um, trying to figure out how to be humans. And even going to an Ivy League school like Brown University, it's you realize well, wow, we are not, I mean, I think it's changing now. My high school actually has multiple meditation classes now. But um, you realize that we're not always um, taught how to just deal with our own minds, you know. And so it was very it was very powerful to develop my own relationship. And, and my parents, who, you know, had a lot of issues with each other, they were both really good at letting me find it on my own. Um, so presenting it... Um, offering possibilities to study or to, you know, go to the Shambhala Center or other places like that, but just really letting me come to practice and study on my own. And I think they were both kind of surprised when I got so into it in college.
0: It's interesting because I'm interested in that. A couple of things about that. One is, uh, you know, as a parent myself, and now you're a new parent, I've wondered about how, do I, how or whether uh, I should introduce this practice to my son. Mm-hmm. Because if I Force it, or if, if you or I force it too hard, or force it at all, frankly, it's likely to get rejected. Yeah. So that's true. Uh, but but you also want to share this thing that's useful. So it's a it's a tricky. You're raising a dharma brat, so it's a question of like uh, you know how do you handle that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I don't know what the third generation is called. We have to come up yeah, with that name. But yeah. yeah. Dharma legacy. Dharma. Yeah. Dharma brat squared. Maybe. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think the you know, so my first real introduction to meditation was when I was about nine, probably. And um, I do remember the notion that the mind was is kind of, you know, like its own arena, you know, so I I don't know when is the right age for a kid to start meditating, maybe just I mean, I think they're doing a lot of studies about, uh, you know, regulating uh, parasympathetic nervous system and things like that, that probably apply to children pretty young. But I remember just the awareness that the world of thoughts and emotions was related to but separate from the outside world, mm-hmm. that one didn't necessarily describe the other. Like, I mean, it's a very simple realization, but just the realization that you can think something and it's not the event that's occurring <laughs> um, is uh, uh, felt very powerful to actually realize that there's some play with a world of um, perception, cognition, emotion that's. Uh, that needs to be understood and experienced in its own right. Um, So I think, I mean, I wonder what age you could just introduce a child to the idea that they're thinking and they can actually just watch their thoughts. Mm -hmm. You know, there's one meditation um, that uh, one of my uh, teachers, uh, Dr. Galen Ferguson introduced called the thought party, where you just imagine that a thought coming in is like a guest at a dinner party or a guest at a party and notice how they're or what their behavior is and just kind of observe them in a more playful space just to realize that thoughts are something that come and then reside for a while and then go away. So that those kinds of more playful exercises, I bet, can be really helpful. For right. sure. There's lots to
0: this. I just know nothing about it, but it's coming yeah. down the pike for both of it us. It is, for sure. So but you, you, the other thing you said about your parents that's interesting is they had trouble dealing with one another, and I know uh, that uh, around the time – you saw The Princess Bride, which is what we're going to get to soon. Um, it was shortly after their divorce. And it's just interesting to me that you can do the amount of meditation that I assumed they had done in Buddhist practice and study and all that. And yet you can have real problems in relationship.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the like any other world, the Buddhist world is full of examples of people who, uh, as I say, less uh, pleasantly – you know, um, suck at relationships, which is really all of us from a certain point of view. Um, so, yeah, 1987, 1988, that was that was fourth grade. And that was kind of a crazy year in my world. And one of the things that happened was my Buddhist parents uh, breaking up. It was actually after the first time I saw the Princess Pride because it was uh, the next summer. But um yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to realize that um, I think there's a lot of myth-making about relationships, which is why I wanted to write a book about relationships that also had a playful kind of pop culture and personal experience or memoir edge. You know, and I think um, from the Western side of things, there's this myth of like a rom-com myth, like you're going to find your partner and then credits roll and you're cool, you know. And on the Eastern side of things, I think there's this myth that these people who maybe have been in monasteries or been in caves or been in forests, meditating for most of their lives, that they must know a lot about intimate relationships, friendship or romance or um, family, you know. And really, when you um, are a modern practitioner, these are a lot of times the things that people are struggling with the most, and there's an assumption That um, somebody else, somebody more spiritual, somebody maybe more Buddhist or more mindful at least, uh, knows how to deal with relationships better, like that there's a master of relationships, you know, like a Yoda or something of relationships. And I think um, that can be a really harmful assumption because that's the first premise of my book is that there's no such thing as a relationship expert, which is not to say that there aren't great relationship therapists. I'm just pointing that the notion of expertise is um, sort of this notion of having mastered something, and relationship is at least two people, and an expert is one person. So literally, the term is an oxymoron. And so I was explaining this to to my father, who's a really wonderful person and Buddhist uh, teacher and musician. Um, And he said, so is what you're trying to say that um, a relationship is... um, relinquishing your expertise? And I said, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. A relationship is the relinquishing of your own expertise. Well, uh,
0: it reminds me of the whole Zen thing about not knowing. Yes. Yeah. So beginner's mind.
1: Beginner's mind. Exactly. And so It's interesting in the Western context. Just explain. Sorry, I threw that
0: term out there, but can you – because since you're the guy who actually knows what he's talking about, (laughs) unlike me, can you just explain what I allegedly
1: meant by that? I've heard you use that trick before, Dan, where you're the the one who doesn't know anything, even though you've kind of dedicated your whole life to this (laughs) stuff now. And you're a a well-known journalist. Yeah, but I forget pretty easily. So my understanding of where not knowing is coming from is there's a term in Sanskrit, prajna, uh, P-A-R-J-N-A is usually the way it's transliterated. Um, And that term, in sometimes in the Tibetan system, they say it means the highest knowing, but that a more literal translation could be like pre-knowing, like before knowing or before certainty. And it refers to kind of a space of perceptive curiosity um, that hasn't made assumptions yet, that's clear, that knows what it might be looking for, but is open, is really open. I mean – from a certain standpoint, I think this is kind of a true journalist mind. It's really like I know what it might be, but I'm I haven't made jumped to a conclusion yet. And so before mo- knowing or not knowing or and I believe uh, Suzuki Roshi that was his uh, term, beginner's mind. Um, he wrote a book called Zen Mind. Exactly. Beginner's mind. Yeah. So I think he's the first one who said that term in English, but I'm not sure about that. And so it's kind of this this way of being in the world that's uh, perceptive, sharp, uh, compassionate, curious, but um, willing to not know. How does that play out in relationships? I mean, um, it's it's so interesting, I think, the assumptions we make about any space of relationships, friendship, um, uh, parenting now, um, romance, which is the big second section of the book, The Search for Buttercup the search for your buttercup <laughs> or stud muffin to uh, even out the genders. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, and I think it actually starts before we even get into relationship with other people is you, the thing that meditation is so good at is taking a not knowing uh, approach to relationship with yourself. Like to actually acknowledge, and I think sometimes this is hard because we feel like we have to move through the world being so certain about who we are, what our profile is, what our brand is, what our identity is, what our resume is, to just say, who is this person? What are, What is it like to have a body and thoughts and emotions? And so I think it's, it's referring to a not knowing that's strong rather than weak, but it's really hard to sell this in Western culture because I think knowing is so much our you know, I think we've seen this recently that the person who claims to know, even if what they're saying is 100 percent false. I have no idea who you're referring no to, no idea who I'm referring to, <laughs> that that claim to know something and be strong about knowing seems to carry a lot of weight in our world. Yeah. So so I have a few more questions
0: just on the on the biographical tip sure. um, before we get into the book, which I, I know I keep postponing, but you're an interesting dude. So I want to just run this down. Um uh, let's just talk about Trungpa for a second, uh, yeah. Trungpa Rinpoche, the, the sure. teacher in whose li- lineage you grew up. Yeah. Um, uh, I just want to say from the outset, I'm by no means an expert. I've read a little a little bit of his writing. I watched that movie about him. Uh, what's that called? Crazy Wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think – I hope I'm saying this accurately. You'll just correct me if I say anything, if I step outside of the lines of accuracy here. But uh, I think the source of, of his, his being controversial is that on the one hand, uh, I think widely recognized as a brilliant teacher mm-hmm. and um, uh, somebody who achieved a lot in meditation. I don't know how you can measure that, but just who was a, a meditative adept. But also uh, arguably drank himself to death mm-hmm. and um, had some dalliances with his followers, including, you know, uh, wives of followers and uh, outside of his own romance, outside of his own uh, marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and also could say and do some pretty outrageous things that hurt people's feelings. Mm-hmm. So uh, what what is, is all of
1: the foregoing accurate? And what is your view of the man now? Well, I'm de- after that non-expertise talk i'm definitely not an expert on him um i'm Did you a, know him I, he was nine when i died so I have yeah, few, you were nine when he died I mean, yeah. yeah sorry
0: yeah. he <laughs> yeah. but he was pretty young he was in his forties. he was 47 or 48 wow. yes. yeah sorry yeah um he um, i consider that young now that i'm 46
1: yeah <laughs> yeah i just turned 39 so yeah it's uh um it's nice to um it's nice to be the age of your heroes isn't it he, or, <laughs> something like that <laughs> I could substitute a few other words. <laughs> it's not so nice. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, a very interesting figure. He was, uh, the f- memories I have of him, he was very kind. I was supposedly around him a lot as a baby because my father was the director for two years of Carmen Chilling, the retreat center in Northern Vermont that he, that he founded. Um, and, uh, so I don't have any memories other than like this kind, kind of high pitched voice, um. Tibetan man who sort of looked like a uh, middle-aged or old British man with a, this Oxonian accent and sort of effeminate voice. Um, very stable, very deep eyes. Um, it, it's important to note I am not his student. I'm a student of his son, Sakyang Mi Ramse, who's the head of the yeah. Shemalas And who's apparently very, 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 very different. Energetically very different. Um, you know, the way I think of Chögyam Trungpa – the, energetically, I've always related to him as like a great artist. I mean, I think when I read his books, there are some things that um, really uh, blow my mind and some things that I'm like, eh, I don't really understand what you're saying here. I mean, a lot of his books are taken from lectures, which as an as an author, that's a weird way to publish books, I have to say, because as somebody who also gives a lot of lectures, it's a different style of orating or presentation. I mean, you probably know this as well. And so it's, sometimes his language can come across as brilliant, sometimes it comes across as opaque. Um, In terms of the controversy, I mean, I think my parents might be uh, better people to talk to. He definitely, and this is the difference between him and his son, um, longevity was definitely not um, his, um, it wasn't his priority, So it wasn't just uh, my understanding alcohol. It was also just that he dedicated from 1970 to 1987. I don't think he slept very much. He was really he was working on so many different projects. And one thing I find really interesting about him is that compared to um, some other meditation teachers, the 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 range of societal Aspects that he was interested in, from Dharma art to flower arranging to poetry, um, to um, creating a nonviolent military yes, meditation. That's practice. in the movie Crazy Wisdom, which yeah. I recommend people watch. So this, he's doing something very different from other teachers. Um, w- would I study with him personally? I really, I really don't know. I, I do remember it. You know, and this relates to my book that that year, 1987, when he died, there was definitely a feeling of among my parent and my parents friends of him leaving too soon and um he also i uh one thing i really respect is he has some of the most loyal students i've ever seen i mean let's let's be honest for a moment um my generation doesn't commit to much unless you know you can do it on facebook and which is not true of uh everyone but um to to generate a small group of students who just really have tried to practice what he taught and really uh, connect with him, um, feels very powerful. But um,
0: what about the ethical lapses? Yeah. Well, I'd, again, what some would view as yes. ethi-
1: ethical lapses. Yeah. I mean, I think. The main thing that I would consider an ethical lapse in my rulebook, and and just so you know, there are very clear ethical guidelines now for teachers in the Shambhala tradition in terms of relating with our personal students, etc. Um, but you know, there's always different views on on ethics, right? So m- my understanding of what an ethical lapse is is when you're either causing harm to somebody, obviously, but if you're saying you're doing one thing and doing another thing, so. I don't know that much about him not being transparent with what he um, said he was doing. And um, I I don't know much about him forcing uh, people to do anything. I don't think I've heard that. Yeah. Um, So, again, I think, you know, what I would say is if you read one book that's uh, important to read to understand him is the book Born in Tibet, which is actually one of the ones I think he wrote. It was one of his first books. And it was about him, you know, fleeing the Chinese communist full invasion in 1959 and um, being 19 or, or 20 uh, years old. And because he was the incarnate lama, he led this party of like 300 people out of Tibet over the Himalayas. It was a 10-month journey. Um, most of them were either died or were captured. At a certain point, they were um, boiling uh their boots to because of the leather in the boots had a little bit of nutrition that they could have a thin soup and maybe get some nourishment and survive. And I think only 15 or 20 people from the party made it to, to India to refuge. So like, just think about what we know psychologically about, uh, about the trauma that that would, that that would um, cause. And I just find it powerful that that's the person who became this bad, um, leader of several thousand, um, Western people and spend the rest of his life claiming that awakened mind and basic goodness were the nature of humanity. So I would, I don't think this happens a lot in Shambhala, but the, uh, being a trauma survivor has to play into his story mm-hmm. and some kind of transformation of trauma into crazy wisdom is the way I make sense of it. But I don't think you have to um, be able to make sense of everything that somebody you respect did. You know, and uh, but it would be good to talk to somebody who who knew him better. But yeah, uh, yeah there there is a powerful uh, presence and absence dichotomy in his energy and in, in my life. Like uh, he, he definitely is. I always like to say it this way in terms of lineage. Um, he's definitely, you know, at the end of Return of the Jedi, when all the dead Jedi are mm-hmm. yeah. holographically yeah. Yes. there yes. in the forest. Yeah. He's definitely a Jedi in the forest for me. Yeah, um, Am I one of the Ewoks? In the scene.
0: Yeah. I think no, you so. yeah, I'm like a furry little entertaining character.
1: I think you're a little more Han Solo than you give yourself oh, okay, credit oh, cool. for. Okay, cool. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh so so you uh just to pick up in your uh chronology here, you you you're, you left us in college where yeah. you had gotten into meditation, your parents were surprised. Now you are an established writer and a and a teacher with your own Uh, organization, the Interdependence Project. How did you get from there, college, to here now, full-time meditation
1: slash Buddhist teacher? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, college really solidified my identity as a Buddhist, and I did a lot of the um, later stages of the Shambhala Path, becoming a Vajrayana practitioner um, right after college. Um, and I was, you know, at that point. Just to define Vajrayana, that that is basically the
0: term, that the technical term to describe Tibetan practice.
1: Yeah, like, it's it's not the only place, but yeah, Tibet is the main and Tibetan lineages. Um, you know, the the main thing that defines um, Vajrayana practice is it's the last sort of body of teachings, and what's sometimes talked about in more stages, but is usually talked about in a three three bodies of practice group group of teachings that you kind of move into sequentially. And the Vajrayana is the one that has different practices where you uh, directly go to the nature of awakened mind um, or different ceremonies. What does that mean? It means that you view awakened mind as something that's already happening rather than like when I get less neurotic after 10 more years of retreat, I will be able to maybe glimpse what the great masters. So, so you take the view, Vajrayana is usually described as taking the fruition as the path. The fruit is the
0: path. The, the right. Yes. Yeah.
1: So in, in other words, if you start to believe in that you do actually have awakened nature, which is like, uh, in, in more, um, I guess to use the, uh, the academic term, exoteric, uh, Mahayana traditions, awakened nature is like viewed as a seed or a potential. And then Vajrayana says, well, if you have a seed, it means the fruit must have already sprouted Mm because the only thing that leaves seeds is fruit. So what if you could actually be introduced to a way of a group of ceremonies or visualizations that actually takes the view that you are already awake and And then work with playing with that? And
0: these ceremonies and visualizations are sometimes referred to as Tantra. Yes. So if I just uh, – again, correct me if I'm wrong. I always ginger when talking about Buddhist doctrine and dogma because I know a little – but enough to be dangerous um, so the three schools generally are described as Theravada which is the old school mm-hmm. uh, Mahayana uh, which developed later um, and then Vajrayana which comes out of Mahayana and um, one of the critics Criticisms of Theravada, the old school, which is the one in which I've sort of come up. Although my teacher Joseph Goldstein mixes in mm-hmm. Adriano stuff into his teaching. Uh, one of the criticisms of this Theravada way is, uh, is that enlightenment is a, you can kind of think of it as like this hill, and it, and the enlightenment's at the top of the hill, and you are hopelessly at the bottom. You gotta get all this concentration together and really be able to see so clearly into your moment-to-moment experience that eventually you have this experience of nirvana a couple of times, and then maybe you're enlightened. Whereas if you get all the way to the Vajrayana school which in which you've studied, it's like, no, no, actually, it's right here right now. You can get right to it through these special practices um, and traditions and and, uh, rituals.
1: Yeah. And uh, that doesn't mean it's stable or that doesn't mean there isn't work to do. It's just that the idea that you actually um, work with flickering in and out of that right. s- style. of Small
0: moments many times. You yes. just taste it and then try to re-up that taste.
1: Yeah. So one of the terms that's used in Vajrayana practice from the Tibetan, the Tibetan term is Rigpa, which means something like primordial or uncreated awareness. And so it's that notion that you can actually work with rather than like how am I confused or how am I screwed up or neurotic, you work with what knows that I'm confused. Mm-hmm. This is a, a basic phrase that actually I, I believe this is a paraphrase of a Chogyam Trungpa quote that's often uh, mis uh, misquoted um, or misattributed to another lama is he said, that which knows confusion cannot be confused. So if you work with the knower rather than the to use my half-Yiddish uh, uh, lineage, um, the schmutz, <laughs> if you work with what sees the schmutz rather than the schmutz itself, um, then you can actually gain confidence that you are fundamentally okay.
0: So so uh, many of these tantric practices are secret, but the, the, this one is is not secret, and and this might my, my Joseph Goldstein talks about mm-hmm. this a lot so we do the basic Theravada practice of just kind of watching the breath coming in and going out then I'll mix in this thing where he'll, which is taken from Vajrayana mm-hmm. uh, from a, a school of Vajrayana known as Zogchen mm-hmm. D-Z-O-G-C-H-E-N if you want to look it up um, and it's a really simple practice actually that will help people understand what it is you're talking about which is you know kind of close your eyes and whatever, listen to whatever sounds are coming up So it might be some sort of hiss in the background of of the audio here. It just may be my voice. It might be your dog barking, your kid crying, traffic, whatever. And then the next move is just to look for what's hearing. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: What's hearing? And in that, sometimes it took me a long time for me to get a taste of the rigpa that I think you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm deluding myself that I even got the taste. but. Just a little, and it's nothing complicated. It's actually – the harder you look, actually, the more you're getting in your own way. It's actually right there on the surface. Mm-hmm. That like, oh, yeah, uh, there's nothing to find, <laughs> right? <laughs> there is no little Dan homunculus in there that's actually hearing all these sounds. It's like, uh, I have no idea. It's a huge mystery what mm-hmm. is hearing this. It's, you're the, like brushing up against the mystery of human consciousness or actually just consciousness. Um, so anyway, I just said a lot, but do you think yeah. I'm, I'm am I on point?
1: Yeah, so the Dzogchen tradition is one of two uh, sort of bodies of teachings on what's called the nature of mind. Um, the other is um, Mahamudra. For, I don't know why in the West, but Mahamudra is a Sanskrit word. It's Chagchen in, in Tibetan and Zogchen is a Tibetan word. So why one is called by its Tibetan name, the other by Sanskrit, I don't know why. In Shambhala, we have a cycle of teachings called wind horse meditation, which I would could say could also be a kind of nature of mind meditation. The reason it gets confusing is that a lot of the Vajrayana teachings are secret in the sense that there's sort of a, a context and a curriculum for introduction into them. But the ways that the public mindfulness practices that you could learn if you go to the Shambhala Center or something like that are um, taught are... Um, Drawn from the nature of mind meditation, so mm-hmm. it's like you can practice, you know, what we call shamatha uh, meditation, um, you know, which is mindfulness of breath, noticing uh, thoughts, noticing emotions, noticing awareness, and a lot of the instructions are actually drawn from the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions. So it's sort of hidden. Some of the teachings are hidden in plain sight, and then some of the ceremonies for kind of embodying. Uh, what's called sacred world, are more initiated. But it's not meant to be some like, um, you know, some club. Thing. It's it's more that there's kind of a sequence of context and that there's also a commitment to compassion, a commitment to benefiting both oneself and others that one has sort of deepened with before. Because, you know, once you start playing, as I talked about in, in this book, like once you start playing with the idea that the mind really is like a movie theater, And once you realize that you're kind of both the director and the projection, you're both projector and projection, if you don't have a really good intention for working with that, you could screw up yourself and others. So there's a a commitment to liberation from confusion, to kind of a basic path of self-honesty, and there's a commitment to um, uh, a kind of path of working to benefit both self and others and then there's a commitment to working with a specific teacher, and in the uh, this is a word that's often overused in our westernization of these eastern concepts. But in Vajrayana or Tantra, the word guru uh, refers not just to any teacher, but the teacher you're specifically working with on the nature of mind meditations and the the visualization and and mantra ceremonies. So, I'm a I'm a Buddhist teacher, but I'm not a guru because I'm not the main person people work with on that kind of practice. So. Um, in our lexicon in the West, guru just means you're good at something, which is not, <laughs> right, right, not exactly. the original intention.
0: Uh, <laughs> all right. So we've talked a lot about your uh, your personal story, and I've been delaying for no real reason other than that, the, that I'm just curious about you, um, yeah. although I knew some of this just because we've, we've known each other for a minute. But um, let's talk about the book, The Dharma of the Princess Bride, What the Coolest Fairy Tale of Our Time Can Teach Us About Buddhism and Relationships. Um, why the – third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans more 10 percent happier on the way but first a quick word from the sponsor of today's episode blue Apron.
2: Incredible ingredients make incredible meals. That's why Blue Apron partners with a community of over 150 artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and responsible ranchers across the United States. Thanks to these partnerships, Blue Apron is able to deliver fresh, seasonal, perfectly portioned ingredients with easy-to-follow recipes right to your door for under $10 per meal. Log in each week to select the recipes you want to cook or let Blue Apron choose based on your food preferences. With Blue Apron, there's no weekly commitment, so you get the deliveries when you want them. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. When you cook with Blue Apron, you bring the best ingredients to your table while developing a sustainable food system for future generations. Join the growing community of Blue Apron home chefs today and get your first three Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping at blueapron.com slash meditate. That's blueapron.com meditate. Blue Apron, a better way to cook.
1: A lot of people hear the title of the book and they're just like, I get it. First of all, I mean, just from the pop culture standpoint, this is one of the biggest narratives of our of our time. Um, this sort of notion of a deconstructed postmodern, hilarious but incredibly poignant fairy tale. Um, but you know, the last book that I wrote with the same publisher, um, FSG, um, uh, the Road Home was really kind of my hopefully twenty first century personally relevant sort of overview of the Buddhist teachings, especially from the, a modern Shambhala. Uh, perspective. And the next book I wanted to write was something a little bit more creative about relationships. And I, I definitely didn't want to write a dogmatic book about relationships for the because there's no such thing as a relationship expert. I wanted to, you know, share this notion that we really do have to work with these myths that can be pretty painful, one that like, we're supposed to know everything about relationships, and it's supposed to be like a storybook. And, or that some other master knows about relationships. And I wanted to write something that also honored, you know, that spiritual teachings happen within a cultural context. So I think that part came from my publisher. My first book, One City, was a small publisher, Wisdom. And they had recently published a book called The Dharma of Star Wars. Which, yes. 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 Yeah. Yes, yeah. I interviewed that guy once, right. yeah. which was more kind of like uh, you know analyzing the Jedi code from a Buddhist perspective, a little bit more like a manual rather than sort of a personal take on something. So I remember saying if I ever um, if I ever did something like this, it would be about the Princess Bride, which is one of my favorite movies, and I think the Princess Bride. Um, I don't claim that it is a Buddhist story, but I do think it has some Buddhist elements. And it's really more about trying to learn about relationships over 30 years, uh, because the 30th anniversary is September 25th. um, and, And just sort of loving a piece of pop culture over that time. But the reason I do think The Princess Bride is sort of Buddhist is that it's a deconstructed fairy tale, right? So a lot of the work we do in Buddhist thought is about taking a narrative that feels solid, that we might not even notice that we're living within a narrative, right? You might not even notice being at ABC News that like a lot of the stories we tell fit a certain structure of the way a story is supposed to be told. So there's a classic fairy tale story. And um, the Princess Bride kind of demolishes that story but is still like a completely coherent fairy tale at the same time which is why it's so brilliant and it's a deconstruction unlike other deconstructed fairy tales like i'd argue that game of thrones is also a deconstructed fairy tale like there's no real heroes everybody's just killing everybody it's a it's a very nihilistic um I, i would argue that game of thrones is a very trump era deconstructed fairy tale i love game of thrones so much it's it's it's, so cool it's
0: i think i thought i read and this might just be some shard of 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 faulty memory but uh i thought i read that actually he based that on um warring european civilizations and and just kind of put it in a cooler context
1: yeah yeah and maybe i mean maybe it'll come back to you know it, it seems like i mean uh I think season seven is just getting started. As we record this. Yeah. yeah. It uh, it uh, might come back to a kind of the future is female, like there actually are heroes who believe in something and life is preserved and people like each other. Mm-hmm. But for the first six seasons, it's kind of like anytime you're rooting for somebody to have some values that are of, they just get slaughtered, you know? So it's it's kind of a nihilistic deconstruction, whereas... I would say that...
0: Um, Let me just say yeah. one thing about this. Because sure. one thing they do brilliantly from storytelling... They do a million things brilliantly. But the person who actually ends up having some values <laughs> is the person who starts off by trying to kill a child in the first episode. <laughs> right? So the Kingslayer, who, yeah. uh, they, they morph him from a pure bad guy into something close to a pure good guy over the course of the first six mm. seasons. That is a narrative tour de force.
1: Mm. Mm hmm.
0: And now I'll shut up.
1: OK. No, I, I think it's beautiful, but I don't you know, the Princess Bride. And I think the reason, you know, it's, it's really interesting how it's grown in popularity from being a movie that didn't actually really do that well to being like probably one of the biggest movies of the late 20th century. Huge now. cultural touchstone for For sure. Um, I would say that it's an optimistic deconstruction. And for sort of the postmodern or contemporary era that we're living in where people don't believe in fixed narratives quite as much or wouldn't like to say we believe, the notion of a deconstruction that leads you towards true love, you know, and that's what Rob Reiner said, that that's the whole point is it's about a grandfather in the movie version, at least a grandfather coming to convince his grandson through just dealing with his brattiness, talk about a non-Dharma brat, the grandson in that movie. Um, that true love is what life is all about. So it gives you all the poignant, sarcastic twists and turns. But, um, you know, only uh, – uh, there's there's two deaths in the movie. That's true. My father's best friend being one of the people who, who die, um, the six-fingered man.
0: Uh, Christopher Guest. Christopher Guest. One of your reveals on the first page of the yeah. book is that your dad was really close with
1: right. Christopher Guest.
0: So um, – well, I always thought it was British because I saw Spinal Tap too many times.
1: Um, his family's British. Okay. Yeah, his father was British, um, but uh, and he was actually a member of Parliament for he inherited his his father's seat in Parliament, yeah. which, uh, on top of his other pretty amazing resume of, of mockumentaries and other great um, comedic brilliances, um, but um, yeah, so I I, I, I just. Uh, there's something very poetic about the movie and also um, poetic about realizing that, like, no matter what happens, it happens in the popular culture of this time. And I think sometimes, you know, studying, for example, the life of the Buddha, you know, who is not the only awakened being who's ever existed, it's so determined by his own personal um, makeup and the world that he lived in that it's really hard to figure out like what would that story look like if it happened in another place in time so
0: what what about the princess bride is most what are the biggest buddhist slash relationship lessons to take out of this film
1: yeah so um well first of all is sort of where it fits into my personal narrative which is that it it uh the reason i got into it was because My father's best friend growing up, he also grew up in New York City, and his best friend since early childhood was, and still one of his very best friends, was the actor Christopher Guest. So that's, you know, the idea that my dad's friend played a bad guy was kind of amazing and hilarious. And that year was this year that Chogyam Trungpa died, that my parents got divorced, that my grandparents, uh, my grandfather and his wife committed suicide together. So uh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Uh,
0: they committed suicide together. What was going on there?
1: Um, my uh, grandfather had fairly advanced Parkinson's okay. and sort of and he was a pediatrician turned um, psychiatrist. And he, I think he just decided he had had enough. And the interesting part was that his wife, my step grandmother, um, went with him. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was just a very powerful kind of um, wow. decision. Yeah. Wow. So traumatic year for a nine year old. Yeah. For anybody. Yeah. yeah. But yeah.
0: Especially a nine year old. Yeah. And you also had some social issues at school.
1: Social. Yeah. It was uh, social issues at um, uh, a very um, hippie um, civil rights era school founded on Martin Luther King's beliefs. I was, as I say, in the first uh, in the introduction, the second least popular kid in my <laughs> class. And in a very un-Buddhist moment, I told my friend that year that uh, who was the least popular kid in the class that we couldn't hang out anymore. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm very interested, and in, in terms of my parallel narrative, along loving this uh, movie, which I'll get back to the Buddhist moments.
0: Um, well, one is allowed long digressions on this podcast, so uh, yeah, just go. That's cool.
1: Um, this is this is like a four-hour episode. Right? Yeah, yeah. Man, take your time. <laughs> um, I'm I'm very interested in this space where people are trying to be good, mindful, spiritual, compassionate people. And we don't always know what to do and there aren't actually teachings in the realm of psychology or the realm of Eastern spirituality or Western spirituality about like how to handle like how should one be a Buddhist kid or how should two Buddhist parents who realize that their relationships not working like my parents break up skillfully or should they stay together because they've made a commitment or something like that. Um, how would one commit suicide um, skillfully right Um what are the um, the responsibilities of a Buddhist teacher to students, et cetera, as you brought up with Chogyam Trungpa? And then, you know, I think later talking about, you know, a Buddhist view of friendship, romance and family and using moments from the from the movie uh, to kind of illustrate uh, my own path with that. And, you know, I think the basic premise of the book is the Princess Bride comes in as kind of this playful cultural narrative that's meant a lot to me and meant a lot to a lot of other people. But It's really about trying to navigate relationships from this space of compassionately not knowing. Um, So if you just want me to give the spoiler, sometimes people think that the um, most Buddhist line in the movie is when Wesley, who's the man in black or the dread pirate Roberts at that moment, says to his beloved um, Buttercup, who he's angry at, um, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says different is selling something. But. I think it's not quite the most Buddhist line because life is not just pain, but life includes pain. But the most Buddhist line in the movie, I think, is Fezzik, Andre the Giant's character, when um, the man in black is coming up the cliffs of insanity and Inigo Montoya has agreed to um, to duel him. Um, and Fezzik says to his best friend, Inigo, you be careful. People in masks cannot be trusted. That I think is the most Buddhist <laughs> line of the movie. <laughs> but tell me why. Right. Because I think for me the the path of mindfulness is about becoming more and more transparent with ourselves and, and who we are and that's where actual presence and compassion and confidence in You're, oneself you're taking comes back from. the term unmasking. Yeah. I, I mean I do think that's what I think I think a lot of times people give up on meditation because they're like, Okay, now I get to go through the world. I have this stressful life in the world, you know. Um, and I get to give myself a better mask, mm. like I get to give myself a better defense system, like Meditate a better shield. And, you know, to realize and this is where I actually love the teachings of Chögyam Trungpa, this notion of um, becoming more and more tender and more available to the world through practice and more uh, authentic. You know, that's really one of the one of the words that in the Shambhala tradition we talk about most often is authentic presence. That's almost synonymous with uh, this often misunderstood term anatta or anatman, egolessness. Um, how do you just be authentically you? And so that was it was really important to share a lot of my personal um, struggles with uh, friendship, romance, and, and family uh, in the book because I do think sometimes with both psychological and spiritual masters the, uh, or practices, the role of the teacher or the therapist is the master or the master is like non-disclosure. And um, there's, a, there's a reason for not disclosing your own process because it might take um, the, the focus off of the student or the client. But I actually think a lot of times we try to come across as uh, a mirror for other people and we just end up looking like a brick wall mm. and I think for me you know with my teacher when he talks about his own personal process you know when I've worked in therapy um, actually hearing what the process is like for someone else um, especially when you have all these myths about like there's this notion that the Dalai Lama must be great in relationships well I mean I think the Dalai Lama is a, uh, um, a great human being a great teacher but i'm hoping he would be the first to admit he's not that good at romantic relationships (laughs) by he's a monk you Mm -hmm. know so and then you have this sort of western rom-com which that's the other beautiful thing about the princess bride is it totally kind of annihilates a rom-com scenario by naming the object of affection buttercup which is just hilarious it's in a very male-dominated film, that's, like, the ultimate kind of undercutting of the objectification of women, of just, of just making the whole thing ridiculous. Um, I think we really have to work with, like, how do we become more and more vulnerable, authentic, and present with not knowing, rather than, like, let's use mindfulness to create a new mask or a new defense mechanism. Because people who try it realize that doesn't work pretty quickly, and they either blame the practice or blame themselves, And I think that's why people quit, to be honest.
0: What's the Buddhist take
1: on um, Have Fun Storming the Castle? Uh, That's the the title of the conclusion of the book. Um, I think it's a notion of joy and just like actually um, the joy of direct experience and actually um, uh, experiencing things directly and and looking at life as more of – Game than, uh, or as Chogin Trungpa like to call it, a cosmic joke rather than like uh, something that's so intensely serious. That's a great take on it.
0: Yeah. I was asking the question as a joke, but you gave a
1: great answer. That that is the title of the conclusion of this book.
0: That is how I would say one should approach the issue of striving and ambition in our lives. Like, all right, just see it as like you're storming the castle, Um, um, Billy Crystal's exhorting you to have fun while doing it. Yeah. and. Uh, realize that it's kind of a game and not a game at the same time exactly
1: yeah yeah and there's a, so there's a lot if you pull a lot of i mean that's the thing about this movie and um you it's it's just meme central right i mean it's just that's always my experience. is is like that when you even mention the movie i mean some people haven't seen it and it's interesting that's embarrassing some people who haven't seen it they know and they are embarrassed they're like i know i should have yeah, Have seen you ever met movie.
0: somebody who didn't like the movie
1: um, actually, uh, my friend Duncan Trussell, uh, said he wrote a blurb for the, uh, for the book. And he said that if he had read my book before getting into a, a horrible relationship with someone who loved the Princess Bride, he probably would like the movie. So I, I took that as like super high praise. Tainted circumstances. I think, well, I think... The things we like and dislike are contextual to yes. our own experiences, right? So that's that's the interplay of the memoir aspect of the book, too. Have you met someone who didn't like it? No,
0: and I have to say, in preparing for this interview to the extent to which I prepared, <laughs> which is embarrassing, um, I re- realized that I actually attended uh, – uh, at, it was in part uh, – um, I was part of the orchestration of a uh, – for Good Morning America of a reunion of the cast nice. of The Princess Bride a couple of years ago that I had completely forgotten I had done. I would say it was back in like 2009 or 10 or something like that. So Billy Crystal was there. Um, was it
1: for the 25th anniversary? I have I no know? idea.
0: Probably. Yeah. Um, I, this is – I don't know if you remember, but we – like many minutes ago in some other conversation, part of some other tangent we were on – Uh, I said I have a terrible memory. I really have a terrible memory. So I don't know why. I don't even remember the other actors who were there. It was um, uh, uh, the woman who's now in House of Cards. Uh, Robin Wright. Yes, she was there, but it was before House of Cards. And also
1: in Wonder Woman.
0: Yes, she was great, in Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is a great movie, by the way. Just, I have not seen it yet. Oh, it's but really good. Well, to, you've been, yeah, a been a little um, busy. But I have to say, my wife and I, our big getaway is we go see movies together. And I, I, we were both really liked Wonder Woman. It's really good. So they, they're yeah. cool. And they handle the now we're really off on a tangent, but they handle the feminism part of it in such a really cool, subversive, and often funny way. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, Robin Wright was there and a few of the other actors were there and it was really cool to sit with them. And Billy Crystal like totally goes for it. He was like he'll say all of his lines and uh, he's he's as as awesome as you might suspect.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, I did get I got a chance to talk to Christopher Guest about the movie. Um, I got a chance to talk to another friend to Mandy Patinkin for. A, a oh, really? Later time. He didn't
0: show up at this reunion. He's a, uh,
1: is he what's he like? Um, I think he's amazing. He was he was super kind. I mean, um, he Is, I, does
0: he have a Buddhist practice?
1: So he's a he's a meditator. Yeah, yeah. He, he refers to himself as a jubu. Um, yeah, and uh, get him um, on
0: this podcast. All right, I well, would love to have Manny Benhagen on I will, this podcast. I will. I will I'm tell a him huge that. admirer of his.
1: Yeah, I'm a big. I'm a uh, I'm a big uh, ho- homeland. My wife loves loves him. In Great homeland. show. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I think it's kind of he actually said I I told him the first line of my book. You know, you know, the famous line that Inigo says, hello to the six-fingered man. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. So the first line of the Dharma of the Princess Bride is, hello, my name is Ethan Nickturn. The six-fingered man was my father's best friend. Prepare to read. <laughs> and I said that to him, um, and he said, wow, I'm getting a little bit choked up because um, he is apparently a fairly intensive method actor and he said that he was uh, – I can't remember how old he said he was when he was f- filming but um, The Princess Bride. But he said he spent a few months uh, before convincing himself that the six-fingered man had actually killed his father, oh. not Inigo's father, Mandy Patinkin's father. And so um, the reason I talked to Mandy Patinkin is because he had written this op-ed piece for Time because – do you know who one of the biggest – this is one of the funniest sort of inter. Connected, interdependent aspects of this movie. To me, um, one of the biggest fans of The Princess Bride is oh. Senator Ted Cruz. You can look this up on um, uh, YouTube or anything, does amazing impressions of um, uh, um, uh, pretty much all the characters. I really liked his Miracle Max um, impression. Um, you know, he's like wowing the Oklahoma City newspaper board um, with, uh, with his Princess Bride impressions. And Mandy Patinkin who's a more New York progressive um person as am I um kind of I think the what he wrote was it irritated him and but he he really used it to as a commentary on how um the movie's not really about revenge even though his character is seeking revenge against my father's best friend which is another interesting interconnection um and uh how he really realized that revenge doesn't work through reflecting on the on the movie. And, um, you know, I I, I took a, a playful swipe at, at Ted Cruz impersonating uh, Miracle Max because, you know, when Miracle Max's heart is touched by true love in the movie, and this very clearly happens, he does offer accessible health care to the poor. Ted Cruz, not so much. So, um, you know, I think there's a... It's interesting how the narratives that we love allow and they sort of mask a lot of, like, um, cognitive dissonance. That's the other thing is you can love something and um, realize, like, oh, wow, that's uh, that's interesting. Like, I don't know that Atlas Shrugged, you know, that as a kid reading that would know that that's, like, a huge libertarian Bible. read
0: Atlas Shrugged
1: as a kid? Or as a, like, college kid. Okay. Yeah, college kid.
0: i It's mean, still tough to get through
1: it. Yeah, college. it was yeah. tough to get through, yeah.
0: Um, in closing, I just want to point out that while, um, you believe, and I agree with you that rom-coms can sometimes set up, um, faulty expectations about romance, you know, as you said before, mm-hmm. you find your perfect match and then the credits roll for a guy who's struggled quite openly with relationships, things are working out reasonably well for you. I mean, seven yeah. days ago you had a baby, you got this book coming out, yeah. uh, your happy marriage is like, uh. You no, know, not bad. I know it's you know it's not like credits rolling or anything like that, but you know, Mazel.
1: Yeah, no, and so it's it's thank you so much. Yeah, Marissa, I refer to her as the real Buttercup, which is you know because Buttercup is it's a myth, the notion that you're going to, and I think that's what the title Buttercup refers to is this notion of objectification of sort of the the deification of romance, which Buddhism is a non-theistic religion, religion really or tradition i don't really consider it a religion um refers to this notion that um we're not going to find an external savior like we are going to find support we might find support from the cosmos who knows the rules that really govern the cosmos but nothing's really going to save us from dealing with our own heart and mind and that's a central premise to, to buddhist thought and every buddhist practice and so Really, the rom-com myth is played against this notion of how we actually, you know, even though we live in an increasingly agnostic, atheistic society, that a lot of people think, like, I mean, a lot of people think the new iPhone is going to save them, Mm -hmm. you know. And that's the way that the uh, press conference that unveils the new iPhone often goes down, like it actually looks like a church gathering. Um, But we often feel like if I find the right person, I won't have to deal with myself anymore. And so I love Buttercup, and I talk about the sort of quest for Buttercup in you know interesting late 20th, early 21st century Buddhist context. Um, I love the way that it kind of undercuts that quest for salvation. So then I do refer to my wife, who I've been with for the last four wonderful years, uh, Marissa, as uh, the real Buttercup, just to bring another layer of irony to the whole thing. And uh, she does have eyes like the sea after a storm, (laughs) Um, but things are going well. Yeah, she's uh, and uh, I'm very uh, I'm I'm incredibly she's she's a a, a meditator and identifies as a Buddhist as well. Um, You know, we have in some ways very similar spiritual paths, I think in some ways very distinct, but I'm super impressed. And, uh, you know, she she's a very creative person. She works full time. I do have to say I am super impressed by what working mothers actually do that is completely uncredited. Just the notion that you are a completely equal person in this world, and then all of a sudden it's almost like a transformer. Your body just turns into this factory and, um, you know, sort of regulator for another human experience, and she's she's handled that process, like kind of – kind of like, are you just showing off, you know? (laughs) Um, so, you know, and we often don't understand each other, you know, she's a Libra. She likes her world very well organized. I'm a cancer, so I get my feelings hurt sometimes. And, uh, but I think we have really good, I, I think that is the key to mastering a relationship is finding, um, the mode of communication that works for you and developing the trust to actually want to commit to it. So, you know, we've been married for a little over a year, and uh, Sharon Salzberg officiated our wedding. I call her the um, impressive clergywoman. Um, she mispronounced "marriage," um, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, yeah, it's been it's been really wonderful. And I think a lot of my struggles with just sort of learning who I am and learning how to be uh, communicate and um, really lo- looking at the beauty of relationships has really um, yeah led to a, a, a really workable if not awakened, then at least awakening relationship. So, yeah, I feel very lucky. Congrats on
0: everything. Thank you for being such a great guest, even though you're seven days out from uh, um, having a baby and I'm sure sleep deprived. And my best to Izzy
1: and your wife. Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: If you like 10% happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at slash survey.
3: Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? now when you read them as an adult you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin we have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today join me DJ and my trusty turntable baby scratch as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast